Hi, folks. Uh, just wanted to leave a quick note at the start here to say that we were having some technical issues with Monica's audio track this week. Uh, everything is totally intelligible, but her her audio does not sound as crisp and clean as we normally like it to. We have since corrected the problem, so this won't be an issue going forward, but just wanted to let you know. Uh, hope you're staying safe, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month we're watching animated films. And today we're talking about Disney's 1944 film, The Three Caballeros. We're three caballeros, three gay caballeros. They say we are birds of a feather. It's Donald Duck's birthday and he receives a box full of presents from his friends in Latin America. Donald opens the first present and receives a projector, which plays three short movies for him. The first introduces him to various charismatic species of bird in Latin America. The second is about a penguin in the South Pole who travels north and settles in warmer climes. The third is about a young gaucho who discovers and bonds with a winged donkey he discovers in the Andes Mountains. Donald opens his second present to find his friend Jose Carioca, a parrot from Brazil. Jose paints a beautiful picture of the Bahia region of Brazil, and he and Donald travel to Bahia via storybook. In Bahia, they meet a young Baiana selling cookies and dance with her and her friends. Afterwards, Donald and Jose exit the storybook, and Donald opens his next present. In it, they encounter Panchito Pistoles, a rooster from Mexico. Panchito tells the two birds about piñatas, recounting how they are part of the Christmas custom of Las Posadas in Mexico. The three birds then travel to various parts of Mexico and encounter different aspects of Mexican culture, including Veracruz, Acapulco, and Chihuahua. Donald Duck becomes infatuated with the various attractive young women he meets along the way, and the final segment of the movie is an abstract confluence of animated imagery and live-action footage. So, David, um, I know that the last time you saw this film was probably when you were a kid. What... Did you, how did you feel about it this time? Uh, I mean, I, I love Disney, like classic Disney animation. Uh, Donald Duck is my favorite character in Disney. I remember this from when I was a kid. Like it's kind of, it's, it's the perfect confluence of, of nostalgia and like kind of really, really vivid, interesting imagery. Uh, I really, yeah, I really had a good time. Yes, this movie is a lot of fun, and I know I've been harping on about talking about it for a while, so I'm glad we get to finally do an episode. Um, So let's talk a little bit about Disney animated full-length features. If you look at the history of these features, basically they got started in 1937 with Snow White, um, and then you had uh, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Bambi, and then throughout the rest of the 40s, there was kind of a lull, and it was very like a mix of filler and World War II propaganda, including this film. 
And then in the 50s is where you see more of the classics that people remember really well, such as Peter Pan, um, Alice in Wonderland, Cinderella, all of those. We usually talk a lot about directors. And in this film, technically, we have four directors. So Norman Ferguson was the supervising director. And then there were three sequence directors, Clyde Geronimi, Jack Kinney, oh, excuse me, four sequence directors, um, Bill Roberts and Harold Young. So I guess, David, what do you know about um, using multiple directors in one film and kind of how filmmakers handle uh, movies like this one where they're not driven by like a single linear plot? Well, so I think it's it's complicated. First off, the the division of labor on animated films is going to be a little bit different uh, than it typically is for uh, live action features. So it's actually it's not it's not out of the ordinary at all to kind of have essentially four listed directors here. Um, there were two different directors on um, the recent Pixar film Coco. Uh, although I think what there was like a director and a co-director. That's much more typical for uh, animated film. I don't know exactly how that compares because live action film a lot of times bigger kind of bigger productions will also have like first and and like sec- uh, second unit directors which is a reference to basically directors who are going out getting shots that the main director is not there for so as a quick example uh during the filming of the Lord of the Rings uh trilogy I can't remember which film but um Andy Serkis who played Gollum also served as a second unit director which meant that Peter Jackson wasn't there, but he was directing certain scenes. So anyway, that's a, a very long-winded way of saying that that like division of labor can get really complicated. And I think, especially if you see if you see a film like this, and it has elements of like omnibus films, and they're they're at the beginning, they're the kind of three distinct cartoon stories, and then we go into a much more loose kind of free open like free association traveling through through different plot elements that doesn't always make sense and in that case i think it's kind of uh, it's so abstract i'm not really sure how that was handled creatively it's certainly not typical especially for a for a larger company even you know even disney at this period which is not the disney we know today this is pretty pretty unusual um, just to backtrack a little bit, so when you were talking about how Andy Serkis did direction for parts of Lord of the Rings, um, is that not because he was kind of like the specialist in motion capture animation and because he was Gollum, so I- I'm assuming he was directing those particular aspects? Uh, that I actually don't know. That may be the case. Uh, whether that was or wasn't the case, either way, Andy Serkis was kind of filling the shoes of both an actor, but like second unit direction is very standard anyway, right? Like it's not unusual at all for that to happen, in a, especially in a big production like that. Okay. And I was kind of thinking maybe like my impression has been that newer movies have credits that just go on and on forever as compared to earlier movies. And I just wonder if, in earlier movies, there might not have been like a lot of uncredited roles. So if somebody was a second unit director, but they're credited 
in the credits as something else as well, then maybe they only get one credit, for example. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the specifics of it, but I think there's probably a lot of truth uh, to that point because I know kind of over time, various unions have gotten more powerful and have specifically altered the way that credits are supposed to occur. Uh, so just to give a brief example, like if you're watching a, I guess, a television program or also um, a movie and you see like a list of actors as they do, like kind of the the action of the show is going on and you're seeing the credits in the bottom of the screen and they show three actors. And then on the fourth actor, they will say like with Andy McDowell. And then on the fifth actor, it will say, and Martin Sheen or something like that. Those are those are union rules, right? Like there are specific regulations about who gets credited in which way. So I think you're right. That's probably, that's changed a lot since, again, like the movie we're talking about now, the 40s. Uh, but I think it is also that the productions have, have grown or at least like, you know, what we think of as blockbusters those productions have grown considerably larger than anything they would have had kind of back in the day. Well, like even modern movies, they'll even list like their caterers and stuff, which I can't imagine them ever doing on older films. Sure. Sure. Which uh, again, my, uh, my guess would be that's, that's a result of like long-term negotiation. Um, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about the actors and voice actors in this movie. So we have Clarence Nash, who was the first voice of Donald Duck. Um, Jose Oliveira, also known as Zay Carioca. Um, he did the voice of um, Joe Carioca, the parrot, of course. Um, he was not only a voice actor, but he was also a musician who had worked with Carmen Miranda. Um, and then we have Joaquin Garay, who, this is interesting, he, um, he was Mexican, but he came to the United States when he was only 11, 11 months old, um, and he was uh, a musician as well and a singer. Um, so when they got him, when Disney got him for the role, they were pleased with his singing, but they thought that his, his speaking wasn't Mexican enough. I also kind of wondered about that when I would listen to uh, Panchito Pistoles, who's the bird whose voice he does, when I listened to him talk in the movie, because the accent doesn't sound quite right, like something's a little bit off. And apparently they brought in somebody to do like accent training for um, Joaquin Garay so that his accent would sound more like authentically Mexican. And that's just um, that's just what you see so often for Mexican-Americans, right? Like not... American enough for Americans and not Mexican enough for Mexicans or for Disney, apparently. Um, and then at the beginning where we have those three cartoon shorts, the narrators were Frank Graham, Sterling Holloway, and Fred Shields. I just kind of wanted to single out Sterling Holloway. You definitely know him as the voice of Winnie the Pooh later. Um, and Ka, the snake in uh, the Jungle Book. And um, he's great. He is great. I have to admit, I think he like kind of creeps me out sometimes. I think it's mostly just from childhood associations with Ka. Like that movie, uh, Jungle Book, really terrified me. Oh, really? What what terrified you? Well, do you remember when he's um when he's trying to? I guess when he he first appears and he's trying to to like hypnotize Mowgli. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and his eyes get that like spiral with mo- yeah that I found that so terrifying. I did not care for that moment or that voice. Uh, I think it's, it's it's kind of funny that he uses basically the same voice for these three kind of very different roles, you know? Right. <laughs> um, but you know, snakes got to eat. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and then let's talk about the the actresses in this movie, like the the people who we actually get to see on screen. So we have Aurora Miranda. We, I don't think this episode will have been released, but we did a Carmen Miranda movie um, on this podcast where we go more into that family's kind of role in uh, representing Latin Americans in the United States. Aurora Miranda was Carmen Miranda's sister, and she appears in the Bahia portion of this film. And then we have a couple of Mexican actresses. First, um, Dora Luz. She sings You Belong to My Heart. And apparently she was in a movie called Destino that Disney made together with Salvador Dali that they didn't finish until a few years ago. Had you heard about this? I had heard about this. I never I never saw it, but I, I read about it not, actually not too long ago, maybe a couple of months. Yeah, it uh, uh, blew my mind. So I need to go um, track that down. Um, and then finally, we have Carmen Molina. She does the songs La Sandunga and Jesusita in Chihuahua, which kind of comes at the end of the Mexico segment. So I guess among all the actresses or the voice actors in this film, which of them stood out the most to you? Uh, so obviously Aurora Miranda, just because I think she kind of she more than any of the others gets her own like set piece. I guess Dora Luz does too, but like that's kind of, we'll get into that. That's kind of different. Um, but Aurora Miranda, I was really impressed by. I thought, you know, like all the songs in the movie are great, but I thought that sequence was really fun. And also, so this was the year before Anchors Away in which Gene Kelly danced with Jerry the Mouse. So uh, I, I was pretty impressed again by the Aurora, Aurora Miranda scene. Just because I think that that must have been an incredibly uncomfortable experience as an actor, kind of managing performing in that way and kind of like acting to invisible things. Like we, I think we're a lot more used to that, those ideas now, but that must have been very strange for them at the time. Yeah, I also, her, I mean, and we're going to get into this more later, but um, her segment is my favorite part of the whole, the whole movie. It's just delightful. I got to say, though, that when I was a kid watching this movie, I got all these women mixed up because all the women in the movie are white or white passing, at least brunette beauties. And I'm like, oh, it's all it's all the same woman. And there's like a hundred of them. Like, seriously. (laughs) Well, I think a big part of that is the um, the beach scene, right, Uh where it's kind of it's kind of built so that the women are more or less interchangeable and indistinguishable, right? Right, right, right. All right, so this movie, when it came out, it kind of had mixed reviews. Um, Contemporary critics said it had, quote, more razzle-dazzle as opposed to the substance they had seen in earlier Disney films, which 
I don't really know how you want to define substance, but like I see where they're coming from. It's not like the previous movies where there's like a fairy tale and here's your plot, right? There was a, a New York Times, I believe, reviewer who was very disturbed by Donald Duck and him <laughs> running around after human women. And he, I he, saw that. <laughs> you saw that, right? And he was like, why doesn't the Hayes Committee, like, why didn't they do something about that? He thought the dance, <laughs> he thought the dancing cactuses were particularly suggestive, which, which kind of cracked me up. And I don't know if that's intentional, but like sometimes a cactus is just a cactus. Um, <laughs> but here's what I'm wondering, David, do you know um, who on the Hayes Committee determined what or wasn't acceptable? Did they have standards? Is it just kind of like the way it is with the MPAA now? And it's just kind of like how they're feeling. Uh, so I don't really know about this period. My, I would venture a guess to say that like most, and I've, I've said this before on this podcast, most censorship boards tend to vary based on like who's there and what they're concerned about. It's hard to think of a, a situation in which a censorship board is is wholly consistent uh, with a partic- particular set of values. Um, I do know that kind of towards the, the beginning of the, the Hayes Code or the, the Motion Picture Production Code, uh, a lot more of the focus was on on crime and criminality because they were just coming out of prohibition and there were a lot of filmmakers wanting to make kind of gangster movies, right. About, about people who were, you know, transporting alcohol illegally and selling it and all of that. And so that's how we get movies like Scarface or uh, the original Scarface that is, or public enemy with James Cagney, which have like kind of a pretty considerable level of violence for that point. But I believe both of those films start out with inner titles talking about like how terrible it is to be a criminal and the filmmakers and the the production companies were able to argue it through as being of a purpose, right? Like, oh, no, the goal is not to show you like these super cool gangsters. The goal is to show you how uh, like criminal life, you know, living a criminal life leads to your downfall and so i think maybe that was kind of some of what was going on here i'm not really sure but because this movie and i know we'll get to it in a moment but because this movie has the like ulterior motive of trying to be the the hand reaching out from the united states to like quote unquote latin america that may have been part of the reason why it got such a pass from the Hayes product uh from the Hayes code one thing i did want to add though it, it was really bizarre seeing that that article written about how odd it was that like you know donald donald duck goes goes uh becomes like extraordinarily aroused going after these women uh because i think that was a you know this is one of those movies that's so thoroughly in my subconscious watching it a little bit i notice it and then seeing the article and it's like yeah that's pretty weird right like why are they doing that <laughs> Yeah, I know that it's something that really bugged me about the movie when I was a kid. I remember Jessica Rabbit from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like whenever there were these these weird like sexual undertones in children's movies they saw when I was a kid, I think usually my reaction was just kind of vague fear. So I know like the beach scene, I remember not having like the fondest memories of when I was a kid. Like I remember being kind of creeped out. Right. Like, and when you're a kid, you don't really know what it is that bothers you, but it's like something, something's not quite right. 
I think we discussed this when we talked about how we felt when we saw Leia in Return of the Jedi in that kind of weird bikini getup, and we were both bothered by it, but it's like, well, it's Star Wars, so I guess it's fine, but... Okay, so let's get in a little bit more into the context around this movie. So as we talked a, a little bit about in the in our episode on That Night in Rio, which you can go listen to um, at some point, basically the good neighbor policy was an effort by the United States to build bridges between the U.S. and Latin American countries in order to kind of fend off um, Axis influences. So um, apparently there were ties between some Latin American countries and Nazi Germany, but um, Disney characters were also really popular there. So Disney was kind of recruited by the government to make basically propaganda, both for Latin American audiences and for U.S. audiences. Um, So that's why in films like this one, you get to see like It's a stereotypical portrayal of Latin Americans, but it's also um, positive. There's also, I mean, because it is, even though you have Latin Americans acting and making music for for the movie, like the people in control are like white Disney folks. So... There are kind of inaccuracies. Um, I saw online some people pointed out problems with their maps of Brazil, which I don't know enough about geography in Brazil, so I didn't notice, but that's like one example. Or also the way Panchito's last name is Pistoles, but it should probably be Pistolas. Something that um, struck me watching this movie now and even watching it when I was a kid is that even though it's flawed, something that I enjoyed so much about it is seeing Latin America and Latin Americans portrayed positively just because I feel like outside of our family, so much of the kind of ambient input I got about Mexico, especially and Latin America as a whole was negative. So even though everything here is like super stereotypical and problematic to use the current terminology, there's just something that's also so appealing about it. And I just wonder how you feel when you see this kind of material. I mean, it's really, it's really complicated. I, I think I'm right there with you. I think my primary emotion watching this last night and what I was mostly thinking about was just like, oh my God, like there was something made in the U.S. that was kind of like this nice to us. Right. Uh-huh. This is, you know, and that's not that's such a strange experience. And I know it's complicated because of the ulterior motives in World War Two and that the Disney company playing offense for the U.S. government to try and, you know, all of these things. Uh, but it was still really remarkable to just see that it's like, oh, they're like in Brazil and they're having a great time and like engaging with the culture, quote unquote, as stereotypical as it may be. And like is you know ditto for for Mexico. Like again, the the idea that there is some something rich or valuable in that part of the world and that history is not a message that we ever get now. And so it was kind of it was kind of a heart heartbreaking watch. At the same time, it's it's also complicated, right? Because it's like you and I are Mexican American, but we're not Mexican, right? Like we we haven't really been south of the border all that many times. Like we don't really have an intimate familiarity with like Mexican cultural traditions, but it's still it's 
it has an emotional resonance because like you're aware that like despite those facts about us we are not to bring it too much into the the like current realm of politics but when someone like Donald Trump says all Mexicans are rapists and murderers we know he's talking about us yeah 100% and um we do go into this more in the that night in rio episode but i i'll just reiterate here like when you see latin america represented in these kind of films, for the most part, it's still represented by white people, right? White Latin Americans, which is not surprising, but it's just something to acknowledge. So this film was actually a follow-up to Saludos Amigos. And David, have you seen that movie? I have not. I found out that it existed yesterday. Oh, so I went, I went and watched it, actually. And Saludos Amigos, it's actually really short. It's only 40-something minutes. Um, but it, apparently it was a feature film. Like you could watch it in movie theaters and it's, um, I saw somebody online describe it as pretty, like you feel like you're watching propaganda and I don't really know if it's any more that than this movie is, but it's, it's just like you go with the Disney animators to, um, I think they just stay in South America and you get to see there's live action footage, but there's also animation, but it's not combined the way it is in this movie. And it's kind of just like a tour of Latin America. And it's kind of like if you took a bunch of Disney shorts and stuck them together, although these wouldn't have been their best Disney shorts. So um, you can watch it if you're curious, but Rica Valleros is definitely way more interesting. I'm going to get back to that in a moment because it did have implications for this movie. So basically, um, there was a lot going on at the time that Three Caballeros came out. So there was an animator strike at Disney, and then Walt Disney... Um, also took a trip to Latin America to do research. Um, some people said he was trying to escape the strike, but evidently that was something that was already planned. But a lot of things were going on, like Disney had been recently expanding around the world, but suddenly the European markets were cut off because of the war. So Disney had just spent all this money and suddenly they didn't have anybody to sell to it across the Atlantic. So doing... Uh, good neighbor policy propaganda was kind of helping to keep them afloat because the U.S. government asked them to make non-theatrical shorts that would be released in Latin America. And the U.S. government recruited Disney's best animators and their newly built animation studio all for World War II propaganda. So their hands were kind of tied in terms of the content that they could make. However, the good thing for Disney at the time was that Saludos Amigos, even though I thought it was pretty me mediocre, had been a success. So building on that success, and I think it came out like two years before the Three Caballeros. So what they did when they made Three Caballeros was they took some of the unused art from Saludos Amigos and used it in the Three Caballeros. And um, some other interesting things you can see in Three Caballeros is that they were trying to save money. So you see like a lot of scenes where there's like cheap backgrounds, right? There's like nothing in the background. It's just kind of like one color. They do a lot of sequences where it's just the camera panning over stills. So like the first Bahia sequence, I guess, it's just like, it's really beautiful. It's like these fuchsia tones and stuff. But the only thing that's animated are a couple of white doves or like the Las Posadas theme. Those are just a bunch of stills. And finally, 
Um, the live action, the combination of live action and animation in this movie was advertised as a draw, but it was also a way to save money because in the, the sequence with Aurora Miranda, if you have just an actual live background, all you have to animate is um, Joe Carioca and Donald Duck running around. So that saves a lot of movie. Saves a lot of money. What did I say? Saves a lot of movie. Yes. <laughs> yes. It saves a lot of money. <clears throat> So I guess do you feel like Three Caballeros feels like propaganda? So a couple of things. I think going back just a little bit to where you were talking about the cost-cutting measures employed in this film, I haven't studied animated film as much as I have like live-action film, so I'm not I'm not exactly an expert here. But I think it's really interesting when we talk about cost-cutting techniques if we kind of look also at anime which i think most probably most of our listeners of a particular age will be familiar with anime has kind of been appearing within the united states for for a very long time anyway but i think if you if you watch a good amount of that you can see a lot of kind of similar cast cutting techniques there so using plain jane background for certain sequences like a lot of series would employ a specific sequence that would be reoccurring in multiple episodes so like ash kind of throwing out a pokeball it's the same animation so you don't have to you know you're saving that many frames in in animation right in animation costs and i think it really makes for really wonderful distinctive films uh partially because it's really interesting talking about like how these effects are accomplished, but also because I think it, it moves people into kind of a different creative space. So like here, I think that the combination of live action and animation, I think it's interesting that they elected to do this because it was cheaper because years later uh, for um, who framed Roger rabbit, the big selling point of that movie was like, look at these marvelous special effects they're doing with characters interacting with, with animated characters, right? Live action and animation in the same frame. And so by that point, it was again, like this big expensive, like starring role of the movie was this technology. And here we're talking about something that was implemented to save a little bit of time and money. Uh, and I think also the um, the effect watching this movie, I was really blown away by how how good it looks. I guess getting to to the question of propaganda and kind of if this film feels like propaganda, I think it's hard it's hard to say because then we have to get into what we define propaganda as. And I think a lot of us have this idea that kind of we'll be able to very easily spot propaganda because it'll, you know, it'll be a giant poster of a man with a mustache, right? Like in 1984, uh, there will be some element of it that is immediately recognizable, but in a lot of ways, propaganda is specifically meant to target you in a different kind of way. For example, um, under uh, Italy, under Mussolini, they didn't have what we think of as like propaganda, like kind of, pro-fascist, like pro-military films. They had uh, what we call a white telephone films, which were basically dramas about really wealthy people. 
uh, and their kind of like personal lives and their personal relationships. And that that was propaganda. The idea was to distract people from the various problems that the nation was experiencing. So I guess, you know, it's kind of a really long winded way of saying like it doesn't it doesn't really feel to me like propaganda. But like, what does it really mean for something to feel like that? Mm-hmm. Right. And if it's good propaganda, you won't feel like it's propaganda. Right. And you may only recognize it with distance in time or distance in space. Right. If it's propaganda in another country, we're very good at being like, oh, those idiot, you know, whoever Russians or something. How do they fall for that propaganda? Well, I mean, we get it, too, in the U.S., but we just don't recognize it. So I want to get into a little bit more about um, the animation in this movie. So I think I mentioned earlier that they advertised um, the combination of live action and traditional animation. I watched a trailer for this movie on YouTube and, you know, it was like for the first time, you know, Disney, blah, blah, blah. A little bit about how they accomplished this. So they had a couple different approaches Uh, One way they would do it is film the live action first and then do rotoscope tracing so that the basically the animator would trace the live action and then animate in the space where the animation was supposed to be so that you had kind of an exact match. Um, The other method that they would use is that they would have the animation done first and then they would project the animation and then the live action would be filmed against the projection. Um, David, as you mentioned, it wasn't just Disney that was getting up to this. Warner Brothers also did as well with uh, movies like You Ought to Be in Pictures and Anchors Away. I was kind of wondering how you how you felt about animation versus live action as a child and why you think that society kind of perceives, or at least American society, perceives animation as being quote-unquote for kids. So I guess I guess as a kid I liked it. I don't know that I I remember feeling just like, oh, I'm a kid and I want to watch something that's animated right now. Like I, I don't know that there was there was really that that kind of instinct. Um I do remember that there was a, a Transformers show. Do you remember that one where the, the they were animals, like robot animals? I thought wasn't that Beast Wars or something? Yeah, yeah, it was Transformers Beast Wars, right? Like it was an offshoot of that. Oh, I didn't know they were affiliated. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I remember liking watching that when I was a kid mostly because, you know, you go back and look at it now, it looks pretty bad, but um it was like 3D rendered graphics and it reminded me of video games. I don't as far as like why we we connect animation with with children, I think I think part of it might have to do with kind of the, the the connection between animation, like picture books, right? So if you're making an animated film, I think it's very easy to have that transition of like, oh, well, fairy tales. And a lot of times we have like a lot of illustrated fairy tale books. And so we can kind of go off that and create something that's, you know, animated and yada, 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 right? Like very, there's a very easy A to B path there. Um, but I wonder if another part of it isn't just 
that like both Disney and Warner Brothers had such success specifically with cartoons aimed at children that that kind of just solidified our ideation of what animation could be. Because like if, you know, we talk about it all the time, but especially now with Disney being kind of the only game in town, the only company around, since they in so many ways like own so much of animation and most of their animation, if not all of their animation is going to be oriented towards children, the public is going to understand animation as being children's programming. Right. And and this is kind of in contrast to the situation in Japan where not only animation, but also comic books or graphic novels, right, are aimed at everybody, right? You've got your little kid crowd, you got your teenage crowd, you got your adult crowd. And, and then why so often stuff kind of semi literally gets lost in translation when it comes to Japan comes from Japan to America. I think we've gotten better about this now, but in the beginning it was perceived that all Japanese animation was for children. And actually there's some stuff in there that children definitely should not be seeing. (laughs) Well, I remember in particular you one time watching, um, I think there were Roni Kenshin movie or something. And I know I must have been eight or nine and he like chopped someone in half in that movie and I noped out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. Well I actually wanted to ask you, you had um you had talked about how, you know, typically we think of it, Japan for this example, but the idea that like animation and comic books are kind of they're different series for different ages but like everyone can kind of engage with with animated or like drawn material uh do you have any sense of like why why that is why that would be different like in japan than it is in the states um i'd really just be kind of pondering but i would guess it has something to do with the fact that they didn't get a disney equivalent up and running that find their audiences to particular expectations, but I don't really know. This is pretty broad, um, but I think I'm glad we're doing this theme because I, th- I think it's kind of a shame. Uh, and again, everything is different now because of streaming and there are a lot of animated series uh, on television that have made really considerable strides and like uh, Cartoon Network has done a lot of work. So I haven't seen it, but uh, Steven Universe is really popular. Adventure Time, um, to a lesser extent, but the uh, Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack um, shows shows like that have been doing a lot of traditional animation and doing a lot with the art form. But Pixar has kind of, I, I guess they weren't acquired by Disney too, too long ago, but in some sense they've kind of always, they've always released with Disney. So they've always kind of been a Disney company. Uh, and I do think it's kind of a shame that that in some ways that's kind of stock standard animation style now is like the 3d, that 3d, like kind of more realistic, still semi cartoonish, but more realistic style. I think it's, you know, it's, it's not particularly to my taste, but that's fine. That's a valid form, but it's, it's really kind of a shame that we're not, we're not getting very many diverse animated, like feature films, not in the way that we kind of used to pre like Pixar, pre really toy story. 
Yeah, and I just want to, just for the audience, I want to note that something that we try to do with this podcast, even though we have theme months like, okay, horror, animation, whatever, we don't want to have kind of isolate movies from each other. So even though this month's theme is animation, I I definitely want to come back to more animated films within another theme, right? Um, same way we don't want to isolate, like we don't want to do just a month of like, okay, Japanese films, but we will have Japanese films like interspersed throughout different themes. Because um, I think we really want people to appreciate films of all types and not just within their like one particular genre or whatever. Uh, for sure. And to, um, to build on that, I think part of the merit of, of kind of, I guess you might ask if we're going to, if we can kind of cover whatever, whenever, what's the merit of doing a theme month. Uh, I think comparing these films as we've kind of been doing, especially on the last episode of each theme and kind of understanding them in the context of like the theme we've chosen um, is an interesting exercise in specifically like what you were talking about, kind of relating films to one another and seeing kind of marks of, uh, I don't want to say progress, but kind of marks of time and change and, and, and all those things. Okay. So the next thing I wanted to talk about a little bit more was the music in Three Caballeros. Disney films are all really well known for their music. I think it's safe to say at least their animations, but um, for this film, and I can only imagine it's partly as a result of the cost cutting, um, or at least that might be one reason. There's only one song that was writ written expressly for this movie, and that's the song Mexico, where you see them writing on that, I guess it's a magic carpet throughout different parts of Mexico. All the other songs were uh, licensed um, from different, mostly Latin American composers, and also there was a little bit of music that was taken from Saludos Amigos, that they play during the Gauchito um, cartoon at the beginning. And I was reading that uh, Desi Arnaz's um, Babalu is somewhere in there, um, but I didn't recognize it, but I'll have to keep a lookout for it. Did you notice where it was? No, I didn't. Semi-off topic, but I was going to say, like, I was thinking about putting this on again tonight, so maybe I'll look for it. <laughs> Oh, oh, totally. No, like, I've already gone back and rewatched all the songs like I used to do with Bollywood movies. Um, but anyway, a couple other notes. You Belong to My Heart that we noted earlier was sung by Dora Luz. Bing Crosby also did a version of that, I think, the next year or two. Um, and I was just wondering, David, do you have, like, a favorite song from this movie? So it's kind of weird because I, I don't know that I really... Other than like Three Caballeros and You Belong to My Heart, I think so much, like I was saying, that last maybe half hour of the film is such a kind of bizarre like dream sequence of, of a movie that a lot of the music kind of mixes in together. So I don't know that I have, I don't know that I can distinguish well enough to say my favorite, but if I had to, I would say probably Three Caballeros. I've been, for me personally, the music is maybe the best part of this movie because I, and I just have all the songs playing kind of nonstop. Well, I guess since you kind of brought up the very um, surreal nature of the latter half of the movie, let's go ahead and dive into that. I saw some commentary online from people who thought the whole movie was very surreal. Like they talked about how the, the, the train goes under the water and then comes back out. And they're like, that's super weird. I'm like, that's just what they do in cartoons. Like, that's conventional <laughs> cartoon physics. Have you never watched Bugs Bunny? <laughs> um, 
But I think nobody would argue that uh, the end portion was definitely wacky, um, even by cartoon standards. The the I don't think it's technically the last sequence, but maybe about where you talked about where Donald Duck gets bonked on the head. That begins the section called Donald Surreal Reverie, and then it um, kind of feeds into the last couple of songs, and it's just it's just crazy. Like you've you've got like that one scene where there's a bunch of women's legs, and then and then the the horse on top. Like that you are, gotta see it to know that are like disembodied, and then the animated ducks are like or the the animated characters are placed on top of the legs that are moving independent. That's very nightmarish. Yes. Yeah. Right. They take a, a whole bunch of imagery from the earlier parts of the movie, which is pretty, pretty normal. And then they like mess with it at the end. And it's, it's kind of, it, well, I guess it's Donald Duck having a, a dream or a nightmare and all this stuff comes back. Right. Like they take the earlier music and replay it, but um, they, they change it a little bit. Again, for for those of you who haven't seen the movie, you really just got to sit there and watch it because I I've said this before, and I know people say that Alice in Wonderland is bonkers, but this is weirder in my opinion <laughs> than Alice in Wonderland, and I really um, the animators were just going nuts, I think. Um, but I just wonder, David, like what kind of what do you make of all of this? I mean, I think uh, to kind of employ. Occam's razor, right? My bet would be that for whatever reason, the animators had like a pretty considerable degree of freedom on this uh, and decided to make things that they thought looked interesting, right? Because that's really, in some ways, that, that ending sequence, that's the only thing that ties all of those elements together is again and i can't i can't say this enough how beautiful this film looks so i saw it for reference uh and i'm not trying god knows i am not trying to shill for the disney corporation like i think it is it is i guess morally dubious at best to give them money but i do so i don't know um i saw this on the um the disney streaming service disney plus and previously uh, i had seen it on like an old vhs tape and so this is the first time i was seeing like the digital restoration i was really blown away by how good it looked i i really do think this was this was kind of an, a moment of like unbridled creativity with the animating department. And I think you get, because of that, you get something that's really remarkable because this film really, it's got those segments at the beginning that are essentially like miniature cartoons, right? The the Donald Duck, uh, Mickey Mouse, whatever shorts. And so we have a couple of those and then maybe uh, 30, 35 minutes in the middle that's kind of relatively structured, almost like travelogue and then again, just like surrealistic fantasy. So you you kind of get the impression that maybe the only had so much script to go off of. Um, something that I wanted to note was that the Pablo the Penguin little short and the Gauchito short, and I'm not sure about the Aves Raras, maybe not that one, but at least those first two, those were actually meant to be released separately and they wound up folding them into this movie. Yeah, so it was like, again, with budget constraints and probably what you're saying, we want to make this like an actual full-length film. Like, why don't we throw that in there and then have some dancing and singing and then just some crazy stuff here at the end? Uh, I was just going to say, I think that's really that really makes a lot of sense uh, 
particularly with the Pablo the Penguin short, which does not feel like it belongs in this movie at all. Like, I, I love it. It's adorable. It's really a, a joyous experience to watch. But, like, trying to find the thread between that moment and kind of the rest of the film is very difficult. Mm-hmm, totally. And uh, something that I, I, some commentators noted was that whereas Saludos Amigos, if you watch that film, it's definitely meant to be um, kind of educational. Here's Latin America. Here's the elevation of Lake Titicaca. This is Rio at Carnival time. Like you have live footage in this movie. They're a lot less concerned with giving you information rather than an overall impression. So like the aves rara sequence with all those species of birds, like those are not real birds in Latin America, <laughs> right? <laughs> it just made up. Um, so it, it definitely, even though the overall intent may have been in line with earlier efforts, they definitely pulled it off in a different way. And I think I also read, unsurprisingly, that Walt Disney um, wasn't really involved in the making of uh, the latter half of this movie. Yeah, that doesn't, I guess um, I'm no expert, but that's definitely not surprising because that, that man was known for being kind of a, a particular kind of task master and mm-hmm. um, having very hard rules about like what was done with specific characters and animation practices and all of these things. So like that's part of the reason this movie is so incredibly strange. It's like you do not see Disney producing this stuff that often. When you were a kid, do you remember how you felt about the really surreal parts of this movie? I did not like them. I think kind of like we were talking earlier about about the inclusion of kind of broad like sexual comedy and how that's that's kind of uncomfortable when you're a child, even though you don't know what's going on. Uh, Kind of the same same story here. I think it's it's colorful, but it's also like I didn't I didn't remember it super well other than remembering that I was made uncomfortable by it. I think I think kids are are very attracted in some ways to to like why do, you know, Grimm's fairy tales, why do we kind of have that same style of storytelling over and over and over with a very simple arc? I think it's because because children gravitate towards something that has like a easily intelligible beginning, middle and end. And so when you present this kind of material to children, or at least, you know, me, when I was a child, like it didn't, it didn't mesh with things I understood. And it it was not, I don't remember treasuring that part of the viewing experience. No, totally. I felt exactly the same way. I really enjoyed maybe the first two thirds of this movie. And the last third was totally disturbing um, and I remember because we, as kids, we had all these VHS tapes of Disney movies. I kind of hesitated to watch this one because I knew I'd have to go through it. It reminded me in some ways of Night on Bald Mountain, the second to last sequence in the original Fantasia with very scary animated images. And I remember as a kid, I liked that movie as a whole, but I was also very scared to watch the end. So surrealism, even though it's not straight out horror as a kid it was something that was very hard to digest and so something that I like is being an adult and being able to watch this kind of media and having a totally different reaction because now I'm like yeah that's freaking wacky but it's so much fun (laughs) um and look look at look at what Disney has been capable of in the past 
question I wanted to ask, because I know you've said on here before that you you tend to like not really enjoy like last week's episode, uh, Solaris, you talked about how you don't part of the reason you don't like sci-fi is you don't like the really strange elements of it. And I know that a lot of times kind of more art film, like surrealism doesn't really mesh with you. So what, uh, I guess, what is it about this film uh, that kind of works for you? What is it about, I guess, uh, the surreal portions of this film that work for you? I think I probably have to hammer out my feelings a little bit better to know why I feel this way, because I actually, like, I love Salvador Dali. Like I love his paintings. There's just, there's something, I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, it's. I guess it's just kind of a case-by-case basis with me, whether something jives with my tastes or not. Um, I'm sure that this movie having, even though it's weird, having still familiar characters and music that I enjoy so much probably makes it more palatable to me in that sense. It has those kind of, um, those like comfortable anchors so that when it, it explores more kind of oddball territory, you still feel like you have your home base. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Hieronymus Bosch would be another example of an artist who, I mean, you wouldn't categorize his art as surreal, I guess, because of the period in which he was painting, but it's definitely weird. And I get so much out of it and I love it. So who knows? I guess that about does it today. What, David, are your final thoughts on this movie or anything you didn't get to that you'd like to mention? I think the problem, so a lot of times in past episodes, we've kind of done, uh, like, would you recommend this this film to other people? Uh, and I think this is an especially difficult example of that. Because while I would totally recommend it, I think this is um, one of those films, I think everyone has them, that's like so thoroughly connected to like your nostalgia bone that even now, like you were saying with the surrealistic element, how you can kind of come back and reevaluate as an adult and see things in a different light. Uh, even now I have difficulty kind of separating this as being like an independent film from like that kind of vague idea that existed in my childhood. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's uh it kind of speaks to the the complexities of film and and more broadly art criticism is that your relationship with any given piece is likely to be radically different from a lot of other people. So I don't know. Um, I guess I would highly recommend it because I think it 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 looks gorgeous, but I can't. I would be very curious to be able to see it with like someone else's eyes. I guess I would unequivocally recommend this movie for everybody, but I could also see how somebody could just come in and watch it and be like, you know, WTF was I just looking at, <laughs> you know? And I also, I also acknowledge that this movie has not only nostalgic, but also just cultural significance for me personally. And I also like, I really enjoy all different kinds of um, Latin American music. That's just my taste. So um, not that the music in this isn't objectively fantastic, but it also means that I'm just going to automatically like it more because that's the kind of music I like. I should give some thanks to my sources today. So we have, once again, Josh Spiegel at Slash Film, Turner Classic Movies, also Mari Ness at Tour.com, 
and uh, Wikipedia. And we'll be having all our sources in our show notes, so you can always look there, too, if you want more information. Um, if you want to check us out online, we are at Mayday Matinee on Twitter, Maybe Today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram, and Maybe Today Matinee at gmail.com if you'd like to send us an email. You can also find us on Patreon. Just search Maybe Today Matinee. Next week, we're going to continue our animated movie theme with 1962's Heaven and Earth Magic. I'm Monica. I'm David. And this is Maybe Today Matinee.